From Schwartz Media, I'm Elizabeth Kulas. This is 7am. Joelle Gerges is one of Australia's leading climate scientists. She says that current modelling is worse than previously thought. But she also says that the most extreme effects of climate change can still be arrested. They just need immediate and radical action. A new report by the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change says it will take rapid, far-reaching and unprecedented changes in all aspects of society in order to keep the planet from warming more than 1.5 degrees Celsius over pre-industrial levels, endangering millions of people. The report from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change found global population growth and changes in consumption patterns have led to a perfect storm. Early action to limit, to reduce greenhouse gas emissions is possible. There are options available. There are signs that mitigation is going on. But if this is to be achieved, there's an urgent need to accelerate. Joelle, you're one of Australia's lead authors on the IPCC's sixth assessment report, which is currently being written. It's, it's due out in 2021. What's it like to be part of that group? It's a real privilege. It involves around 200 international experts who actually volunteer their time to provide a state-of-the-art assessment of the physical basis for understanding climate change. But it's also a huge amount of work and it spans around four years. Joelle Gerges is an award-winning climate scientist and writer based at the Australian National University. She wrote about the alarming truth of climate change in the latest issue of The Monthly. And when you're involved in a United Nations process like this, you're looking at global trends and it provides us with a real perspective hit. It's like zooming out to be able to clearly see the bigger picture. For example, the Earth just experienced its hottest July on record. There have been wildfires in the Arctic Circle. So we're seeing unusually extreme events playing out and they're record-breaking and unfolding more often across the planet. And these things uh, I wouldn't have expected to see until perhaps the middle of the century. And what's it like to see this kind of data coming in? And I mean that in a personal sense. Yes, the results coming out of the climate science community at the moment are alarming, even for experts. The only thing I could really think about um, in terms of the feelings I was processing at the time was uh, was grief, and it was really the loss of my father uh, around 18 months ago. I do remember being in uh, an intensive care unit and, and seeing this uh, really quite a horrific CT scan of a brain hemorrhage that my, my father had just experienced and, and, and really talking to the doctor there, being in that position where when all the evidence is laid out in front of you, I mean, you can sit there and you can argue with the doctor if you like, but it doesn't make the reality uh, any different. When you actually confront reality, it, it is a really difficult uh, emotion to grapple with. I know that it's a, a difficult thing to feel. An emotional response to something like climate change that sometimes feels really far away, but when you start to piece it all together and you can see that the impacts uh, it's having on our, our natural ecosystems and our societies all around the world, it, it's hard not to have an emotional response. Since you began work on this sixth IPCC report, 
some new modelling has come out regarding CO2, carbon concentration in the atmosphere. What does that early modelling show? So the new climate modelling results that are being used for the IPCC's global assessments are still coming online, uh, but some of the early results really are concerning. For example, a common metric that's used to investigate the effects of global warming is known as equilibrium climate sensitivity. And it's sometimes referred to as the holy grail of climate science because it helps quantify the specific risks posed to human society as the planet continues to warm. And so when the IPCC's fifth assessment report came out in 2013, it estimated that such a doubling of CO2 was likely to produce warming in the range of about 1.5 to around 4.5 degrees as the Earth reached a new equilibrium over decades to centuries. But these preliminary estimates that have been calculated from the latest climate models are far higher than with the previous generation of models. And these early reports are predicting that a doubling of CO2 may in fact produce between 2.8 and 5.8 degrees of warming. What this is really doing is suggesting that the planet may warm a lot more than we previously thought. And by extension, this warming is going to mean what? What kind of significant or extreme effects are we going to see in other parts of the environment? Well, for example, just under a business-as-usual scenario, Australia's average temperature is projected to increase around four degrees across the country by the end of the century. And this makes our climate even more extreme than it otherwise would be. This is a disaster zone, and you can really see that if you have a take. Take a look around me. I'm on a boat here. We're driving into one of the suburbs called Adalia, and it is completely underwater. This suburb has been turned into a sea. You can see... January was officially Australia's hottest month since records began more than a century ago and there's no relief in sight from the sweltering conditions. The Bureau of our Radio droughts Radio. become even hotter, our heat waves become more intense and our bushfire season is now extending into winter as we're currently experiencing in New South Wales. Winter and the RFS says the race is now on to carry out back burning and as many hazard reduction burns as possible before the actual bushfire season starts. We also start to see an increase in intensity of rainfall, tropical cyclones drifting further south into areas that weren't previously impacted and more heat-related deaths, the spread of mosquito-borne diseases. So we're really talking about a very different Australia than the one that we're used to. And Joelle, what happened when these early modelling results started coming across your desk? So these results were first released at a climate modelling workshop in Spain earlier this year. And I had a colleague who was, who was attending and, and he basically updated the group. And and then my inbox was just inundated with a whole range of quite panicked emails, if you like, from my IPCC colleagues. And, and we were wondering, well, what if the models are right? Has the Earth already crossed some kind of tipping point? And are we experiencing abrupt climate change right now? Many people in my chapter team were concerned, but just as with everything in life, we need to keep cool head and we need to wait before we have more information at hand to know exactly what we're dealing with. We'll be right back. As a a 7am listener, you value the story behind the headlines. That's why you should read Post, a free daily newsletter bringing you the top five news stories of the day, summarising each of their key points with links to full articles from a range of sources. Get the news you need to your inbox every weekday morning with Post. Sign up at thesaturdaypaper.com.au slash newsletters. As a a 7am listener, you value the story behind the headlines. That's why you should read Post, a free daily newsletter bringing you the top five news stories of the day, summarising each of their key points. Sign up today at thesaturdaypaper.com.au slash newsletters. 
So, Joelle, as you work on this sixth IPCC report and this new modelling is coming through suggesting that the outcomes of climate change could be more extreme or catastrophic than anybody thought, what does this mean for the targets that were set by the Paris Agreement in 2015? Well, these results suggest that the climate's response to increasing greenhouse gases um, from human activity might be a lot more sensitive than we previously thought. So we really do need to do everything within our power to put the brakes on rising emissions. And to restrict warming to two degrees above pre-industrial levels, as was agreed under the upper target of the Paris Agreement, the world needs to actually triple its current emission reduction pledges. And with two degrees, a staggering 99% of tropical coral reefs will be lost. So we're talking about an entire component of the Earth's biosphere, which is our planetary support, uh, life support system, would be eliminated. Where does Australia's contribution sit within that very grim picture? Well, the Australian federal government has a target of reducing emissions by 26 to 28% below 2005 levels by 2030, which experts believe is more aligned with global warming equivalent to around three to four degrees. And really the outcome of that would be quite catastrophic. And so our target is no slouch. And let no one tell you it is. It's a fair income commitment. It's a serious commitment that requires real effort to achieve. And we are playing our part. We are doing our bit. And despite Prime Minister Scott Morrison's claims that we will meet the Paris Agreement commitments in a canter, Australia is clearly identified as one of the G20 nations that will fall short of achieving its already inadequate nationally determined contributions by 2030. And despite Australia's alarming vulnerability to climate change, some people argue that because we are only responsible for 1.3% of total global emissions, that what we do doesn't really matter. But if you add up all of the countries that have emissions under 2%, pretty quickly it adds up to around 40% of total global emissions. And when you look at it in terms of emissions per person, we are the most emissions-intensive Western society in the world. So we really do have a decision to make about whether Australia wants to position itself as one of the last bastions of the fossil fuel era or a leader in the clean energy revolution that is currently sweeping the world. And Joelle, as you say, the government describes Australia as meeting its reductions targets in a canter. Are they essentially lying? Well, I'll leave it up to others to comment on that, but I would say that the government's claim is not supported by the science. And in your mind, Joelle, we at a point where we could still arrest the impacts of climate change? Yes, it's possible, but the window is rapidly closing. So the climate science community has clearly stated that limiting warming to 1.5 is in fact geophysically possible. So the IPCC report states that any further warming beyond one degree that we've already experienced would likely be less than half a degree over the next two or three decades if all anthropogenic greenhouse gas emissions were reduced to zero immediately. So that is, if we act urgently, it's technically feasible to turn things around, but we have to stop immediately in terms of the emitting of greenhouse gases. And what would it actually look like if we said, yes, we are going to commit as a country to doing the very best we can to reach zero emissions immediately? What would it actually require? It would require unprecedented political courage and cooperation. The economic and social transformation um, that's urgently needed over the coming years is, is possible if the world goes into an emergency response as it did during World War II. So it's big, but I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that the future fate of humanity rests on the decisions we make right now, and it is in fact possible. The only thing missing here is strong political will. 
At the moment, we're on track for something like a three to three and a half degree rise in global temperatures. Where does that sit for scientists in what we understand of the Earth's history of warming? As scientists, we are looking uh, very closely at research into how the planet has responded during other warm periods in the Earth's history. So we know that temperature rises of around one and a half degrees to two degrees in the past was enough to see significant changes in our climate zones um, and also in terms of our land and aquatic ecosystems. And these changes triggered substantial long-term melting of ice in places like Greenland and Antarctica, which unleashed around 6 to 13 metres of global sea level rise, which lasted thousands of years. So examining the Earth's climatic past tells us that even between 1.5 and 2 degrees, uh, as set out by the Paris Agreement, uh, still sees the world warm in, in ways that people don't really yet appreciate. And all bets are off between 3 and 4 degrees, which is where we're currently headed. So parts of Australia would become uninhabitable, and other parts of the country would become increasingly ravaged by extreme weather events. So we are talking about a very different Australia. You're at the front line of all of this. How do you process the data that's coming through? Well, I have to be honest and say that some days I just feel really overwhelmed by the challenges we face. And I feel really uh, saddened uh, at, at the loss of you know, magnificent ecosystems like the Great Barrier Reef and, and some of these things that are unfolding in real time right now, uh, I just find that just genuinely uh, distressing. As a climate scientist talking about the way we feel about what we're seeing, um, that kind of cuts both ways because I've had some commentary uh, from climate change sceptics saying that that makes me emotional, that makes me irrational. I stand by what I've said. I think it's important and it also provides other people with a space to be able to process these uh their, their emotional response to this crisis, the same way you would process the news of a, a medical diagnosis. It, it, it's, a, it's actually a visceral experience. It, it's a head and the heart connection rather than it just being an intellectual exercise. But I can also sometimes feel really frustrated because all the technology we need to limit the amount of dangerous climate change that we will experience actually already exists. Really, it, it's time for our business leaders, our community leaders, uh, our political leaders to really step up. And the question is whether we will muster the very best of our humanity in time. Joelle, thank you so much for speaking with us. My pleasure. Join Richard Tognetti and the ACO for a bold and intrepid 2022. Featuring a live national concert season, their acclaimed on-demand film series ACO Studio Casts, and exciting programs from their new home in Sydney's Walsh Bay. Subscriptions now on sale at aco.com.au. For Sloan Crosley, writing about the loss of a friend may not have provided catharsis, but it did allow for the possibility of a better ending. Like you have this amazing meal that's this friendship and then you have a really, 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 really bad dessert with shards of glass in it. And then like the book is like, you know, those little chunks of chocolate that come with the bill. I'm Michael Williams. Join me for this week's episode of Read This as I talk to Sloane Crosley about her latest Grief is for People. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Elsewhere in the news... Early reports from the Nauru general elections suggest President Baron Wanga has lost his seat in the parliament. According to an early count, he placed third in his electorate, just ahead of opposition member and Nauru 19 leader, Matthew Batsua. Further results should be known today. 
And Ivan Milat, the convicted serial killer, has written a long letter to the nine newspapers claiming he's innocent of the seven murders for which he was convicted and that he was framed. Milat has esophageal cancer and is thought to be gravely ill. This is 7am. I'm Elizabeth Coolass. See you Tuesday.